Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Gospel record of Luke. The Gospel record of Luke in chapter number 3. The Gospel record of Luke in chapter number 3. We're going through the Gospel record of Luke, exploring it together, just bit by bit and just having a wonderful time going through it. And we've already seen the birth of Christ, the early childhood of Christ, and now we start preparing for the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior. And we come up to the gospel record of Luke and chapter number three, and we could see the way being prepared for Jesus to come. If you don't mind to look with me, the gospel record of Luke chapter three, notice with me if you don't mind in verse one, number one, the gospel record of Luke chapter three and verse number one. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip the tetrarch of Idumea <laughs> and the region of Tecratonus and Linnaeus the tetrarch of Abilene. Ananias and Caiaphas, being high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the word of Isaiah the prophet, crying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham." Now also the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore which bringeth not good forth good fruit is hewed down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him saying, What shall we do then? He answered and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? And he said do unto them, Do no violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And the people were in expectation, and all the people mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. 
John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather the wheat unto his gardener, but the shaft will he burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached he to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being removed by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done. And yet, added yet this above all that he shut up John in prison. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, will you mark a phrase that we find in the gospel record of Luke in chapter number three? The gospel record of Luke chapter number three, and notice with me in verse number two where it says, the word of God came unto John. The word of God came unto Unto John, in, in the gospel record of Luke chapter 3 and verse 2, the word of God came unto John. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come to you, I recognize that this is the midweek. And during this week, many things have happened. People have dealt with work. They've dealt with life. They've dealt with weather. They've dealt with this and health issues. And Lord, during this time, it's easy to be distracted. It's easy to come tired. It's easy just to be weary with the world. It's easy to have the world have a, a hold on us. I'm asking for these next few couple minutes, Lord, that we would be able to set aside all the weights of the world, everything that may hold us back or distract us. Let us set it aside that we may learn of you and that you can do a spiritual work. Lord, I'm praying that you would just grab a hold of some heart now, that you would prepare them to make their way straight. That they could understand what this means about salvation and remission of sins. That they would have an understanding of what repentance truly is. And that you would do a work that would last for eternity in someone's life. Lord, I recognize that I can't do this myself. I don't even dare. This is a spiritual work that must be done by your precious spirit. So the best I know how, I surrender myself to you now. I give you my body. I give you my tongue, my mouth, my words, my thoughts. You take them all and you set them in order. You set them in the way that you want to. Just use me as your instrument even now. Thank you, Lord, for what you are going to get accomplished. In your name we pray. Amen. As we begin with the public ministry of Jesus Christ, it starts with his forerunner. It starts with the herald. It starts with the one who prepares the way for Jesus to come. And that would be the ministry of John the Baptist. And as we examine the ministry of John the Baptist, we could see that there are three statements that are given here that would declare the ministry of John the Baptist. The very first statement that we would find here of his responsibility encompassing the role of John the Baptist is first of all preparing the way of the Lord. Preparing the way of the Lord. Now as we begin remember that the writer of 
the human penman of the gospel record of Luke would be Dr. Luke. And remember that he is writing this as a research project. And it is very well researched, very well detailed, very well cited. So that way people could have an understanding of the history that occurred. And so it's no surprise that verse number 1 of chapter 3 starts off by giving the context of the time. And with this context of the time, it's very interesting way to introduce John the Baptist to the world. Notice with me in chapter 3 verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetriarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetriarch. And it goes on and explains the other two tetriarchs. Then verse number two, Ananias and Sapphira, or Caiaphas being high priest the word of God came unto John. Now with this, there's a lot of history that's been unpacked here. It starts off that while we're seeing this transition, remember that 400 years of silence have come since Malachi to Matthew. 400 years where God has not revealed any scripture. However, the world has not been put on pause. The world has actually been moving forward. Three different world empires have changed since Malachi. Malachi, you had Persia as the world empire. In between that, you had the Greeks come. And then finally, the Romans. And the Romans are thoroughly entrenched. And in fact, the Roman world has changed. That it started off as a Roman Republic and it switched to a Roman Empire. And during this time, the Roman Empire had a specific emperor, Tiberius Caesar. Remember Caesar is a term like Pharaoh or King. It's not his actual name, but it is a title that he has. And it acknowledges here that it is Tiberius Caesar who rules. Now, Octavius Caesar had followed Julius Caesar. Octavius Caesar was the Caesar during the time of Jesus Christ's birth. And now his nephew Tiberius rules in his place. The city of Rome was full of about two million people. Half of them were slaves and thousands more were on relief. And it's in the midst of this time that Tiberius Caesar's ruling and Tiberius Caesar had another thing. He hated Jews. So in this backwater town of a strip of land in the middle of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire happened to hate all Jews. And because of that, his rules made things just a little bit harder for the Jews who ruled, who lived during this time. Again, it's giving some context here that the government is oppressive. The government hates the people who live here. The previous Roman governor of the area, Pontius Pilate is now uh, being governor, but before him, the previous Roman governor, because Tiberius Caesar hated Jews, the Roman governor had swapped out high priest until he could finally find a Jewish high priest that would be pliable to the Roman interest. And so thus you have two Roman governors, or two Roman high priests, uh, Jewish high priest, Ananias, and Caiaphas, who are some of the most corrupt high priests the Jewish people had ever had. And so you have a Roman government who's overall that hates the Jewish people. On top of that, you had Roman governors who hated the Jewish people. On top of that, you now have the two most important religious figures of the Jewish people who are corrupt, who are easily to be bribed, and are pawns to the Roman government.
And if that wasn't bad enough, we could see something else listed. Verse number three or one. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetriarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetriarch of Idumea. Now in this, it now speaks of the sons of Herod the Great. Now Herod the Great was a master politician of himself. He had worked his way for the Roman. Roman Senate to call him king of all the Jews, that Roman, um, <laughs> that, excuse me, Herod the Great was so hated, he knew that no one would weep over him. And so when he got sick, ready to die, he had the 70 most influential, popular Jewish people alive at the time arrested with the with the order that as soon as Herod the Great died, that all 70 of those people were also to be killed. For that reason, all of Israel would be in mourning when he died. Because he knew no one would weep for him otherwise. And so when he died, his four sons now took a turn, or took a piece of the kingdom. You had Philip the first, Philip the second. You had um, here Herod, uh, which is going to be Herod Antipas. And you had um, Archelaus. Now Archelaus was a madman. He was mentioned in the gospel record of Luke that when Herod the Great died and they heard that Archelaus ruled, they went to Egypt, uh, Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. Because Archelaus was a crazy man. He was so crazy that the Roman... Uh, Government actually pulled him aside. And now you have a Roman governor who's ruling that kingdom instead of one of Herod's sons. So this is the backdrop that you have. A corrupt government who hates Jewish people. You have two corrupt officials of the highest uh, officials, the highest people of the Jewish religion. You have kings all around them who hate God's people. And it's in the midst of this that now you're introduced to John the Baptist. Imagine this here. That it took, in order for God to introduce John, it, God had to introduce, in order to prepare for John, had to introduce a Roman emperor, two high priests, a Roman governor, and three tetrarchs. Just to introduce the man, John the Baptist. Why it's it talking about? That no other time did you need someone to make the way straight. No other time did you need someone to prepare the way. This is in its darkest time. And may I remind you that it's often in the darkest time that that's when we need revival. And that's when revival comes. That's when God's spirit's going to work. When everything seems so dark and hopeless. You may say... <laughs> My wife was in a conversation with someone who's not uh, biblically literate, just very cursory, uh, knows a little bit about Christianity. And so she had went to my wife and said, is this the end of days? And my wife said, not even close. Well, what do you mean? Things are really bad. She goes, things are not that bad. There are times in history that's even, even worse than this. And by the way, before it's all said and done, it's going to be completely worse than this. But you know, before that time, whenever we look at history and we look at the worst part of history for the Hebrew people, for the Christians, that's darkest time is when revival comes. 
when God works. And we may look at our history now in America. And we may say, woe is me, look at how bad things are. And we may go to the gas tank and say, oh, woe is me, look at how bad things are. And we may look at churches and go, well, woe is me, let's look how things are. And you look at everything else and go, woe is me. But let me tell you, it's in the darkest times that God sends someone and he brings revival. Let me tell you that we may look at our darkest times. You should get excited instead of depressed. You should say, oh, God's going to be doing something. God's going to be doing something. And even if he didn't bring revival, the rapture will happen. That means God did do something and we're out of here anyways. We should be looking at these times with anticipation. What is God going to do? What is God going to do? And as God lists, before he even mentions John the Baptist, he says, let me tell you how bad things were. They could have not have gotten any worse. They could have not gotten any more corrupt. They could not have gotten any more less God view than what they were when God sent the word of God to John. Let's go on and see what it says. In verse number uh, 2, and Ananias and Caiaphas, Caiaphas, being high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now remember, John has been living in the wilderness for a while. He's been waiting for God to say, all right, John, go have him. He's been waiting all this time in preparation where God's been making him. And finally says... John, it's time. And so John came out into the world scene after being hidden into the wilderness and he begins to preach. What does he preach about? Verse number 3. And he came into all the country around Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance. Notice this. For the remission of sins. Now some of our friends who may have a misunderstanding of baptism use this verse quite often in their minds to prove that baptism is necessary for salvation. And they'll say, look, here is baptism repentance. Why? For the remission of sins. But remember that when you see that word for, it actually has two types of definitions. It has the idea because of or in order to. That's important because which one you use makes a different understanding here. If you say that the baptism of sins in order to have remission of sins, that's what our friends would say who believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. They would say, listen, you have to be baptized in order to have remission of sins or forgiveness of sins to have your sins washed away. However, we understand, looking at the Bible as a whole and keeping context true and letting clear passages interpret, interpret the unclear passages, we would understand that it says, preaching the baptism of repentance because of the remission of sins that we currently have. So because we have remission of sins, we now get baptized. Baptism is not washing away our sins. It is done for the purpose of showing I am forgiven of my sins. I am forgiven. What a wonderful thing. And so this 
is important because it goes along with the message. What is the message that he is saying? Well, he's preparing the way straight for the Lord. Notice his verse number 4. It goes on and gives the Old Testament prophecy of John the Baptist. What is John the Baptist's purpose? Verse number 4. As it is written in the book of of the words of Isaiah the prophet saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. That's what John's job was to do. Was to prepare the way of the Lord. To make it easy to get to the Lord. Now remember the context of where they lived in. The context was a corrupt world. A dark world. A world that was oppressive to anything close to following after God. And he Here was the voice of one in the wilderness to shine a bright light, to make straight the path, to say, here you go, this way. You didn't have to look for it on your own. You just had to find the one who says, go this way. Here's the directions, go this way. You didn't have to look for it. You didn't have to be lost anymore. You had someone to be able to point you to the correct way. Notice as it goes on in the prophecy of Isaiah verse 5. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked should be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. So again, in the darkest time, in the time where things were so corrupt, in the time where people said there's no more hope, God says, John, come out. And John was here for the same purpose, to make the way straight, to make it easy for people to trust the Lord, to make it easy for them to turn to the Lord, to make it easy, by the way, Why? What was it that made things to be easy to follow the Lord? Well, it was because of repentance. To make the way straight. The baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He's trying to say, repent, repent. That was his same message. Let me define those terms as we go to our second thing. Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Remember, there are three sayings that really mark what is the purpose of John the Baptist. The first, to make the way straight unto the Lord. The second, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. John was not here to hear lip service. To hear people say, oh, I believe. No, what he was there to do was to make sure there was fruits there for repentance. Let's define repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Now this is important. Sometimes people will define repentance in different ways. They'll say in order for you to truly repent, you have to have a godly sorrow and you have to have tears. That means that if you didn't cry, you didn't really get saved. Well, that's not true. It's not the idea of tears. It's not the idea of breaking down. By the way, when you got saved, it wasn't because you were weeping at the altar. Of course, you could have been. It wasn't the idea that when you got saved, that angels came down and went, oh, and you had a light shining upon you. That's not an experience that we have. But what happened? Well, it comes to the idea that we realize that we are sinners. And because we're sinners, we've offended a holy, righteous God. And believe it or not, according to the Bible, we deserve hell. You know, that's a big realization for someone to realize that I 
deserve to go to hell. You know, some people have no problems admitting that, you know, when I'm a sinner, I do things wrong. I'm not perfect. They may even say, well, sure, I may owe God a punishment. But for someone to realize, to honestly realize, I deserve hell, that's a big deal. That's what the idea of repentance starts with. Realizing who you are. That it's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It's going this way, this way. And realize I was going the wrong way. And I turn from my wicked ways. I turn from the path I was going. And God has changed me. Now I'm going a different path. And because I'm going a different path. There's something that's going to be changed in my life because of that. And that's what John was looking for. John says, I'm not looking for someone to say, oh yeah, I'm saved. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, I go to church. What John was looking for was evidence. Evidence. Now, evidence is just backing up what happened. That if you got saved, what do we mean by getting saved? That means I were, was forgiven of my sins. How was I forgiven? By Jesus Christ who paid my price up on the cross. I came to the place where I personally asked him to be my savior. And when he did that, he came to live inside of my heart. Now, if something as big as God comes to live in something as small as my heart, there's going to be some changes. There are going to be some changes that spiritual people are going to be able to discern. This is that idea that John is now talking about. Notice with me in verse number 6 or 7. Then said he, that's John, to the multitude. Now notice who he's talking to. He's talking to a multitude. Inside of a multitude you will have a mixed group of people. You will have some people who are saved, some people who are not. You may have some people who are cynical. You may have some people who are dubious. You may have some people who legitimately believe he's speaking to a multitude that has different people inside of it. And so he's not speaking to individuals. He's speaking to a crowd. Notice, then he said to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. Now remember this idea of baptized, the same in verse number six, the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. This idea for the remission of sins carries the idea because of what God has already done for us. Because I am saved, I am going to come and get baptized. So John came and said, listen, all you people came to be baptized. Who told you to come? Who told you? Again, he's prepping this up really quick. Because he understands that there are some people who are going to attempt to get baptized. Because that's what everybody else is doing. He understands that there are some people who are going to make a profession of faith because their brother or their sister did. There are some people who are coming because someone is trying to push behind them. Come on, say a prayer. By the way, these things happen today. There are some people who will say a prayer just because mommy and daddy tells them you need to say this prayer. There may be someone who says a prayer and says, well, I'll accept Jesus just because a pastor forces them to. It may be that just because my best friend went to an altar, I went to the altar. Now, I didn't know what I was doing at the altar, but I came to the altar. And therefore, someone went up and said, blah, 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 you're now saved. Now, he's saying, we're trying to get rid of all religious. We're trying to get rid of all of the vain. We're trying to get rid of all of the empty. And we're trying to come to the idea, are you truly saved? We're not trying to doubt 
get you to doubt your salvation. We're trying to make sure that you truly have the genuine article. And that's what John the Baptist is speaking about here. And he's speaking, by the way, you ever thought your pastor was hard? You should look at some of the messages that John preached. I mean, he said, oh, you generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John was someone who didn't mess around. He says, we don't have time to play uh, footsies. We don't have time to make a little dance. This is life and death. We need you to know that you know that you know that your sins are forgiven. We need you to know that you know that you know from God's word that your sins are taken care of by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 8 as he's continuing the message, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. Why is he saying this? Because he understands from verse 7, there are some people who genuinely have not accepted the free gift of salvation. There are some people who have not repented, a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. And he says, therefore, I am <laughs> looking for fruits worthy of repentance. And begin not to say within yourself, we have Abraham. Let me pause there. This idea of fruits worthy of repentance is a big deal. That means that before he would baptize someone, he wanted to know that there was evidence of a changed life. There was evidence that there was something different. Now, I understand that some people would imagine a, a big radical change. But it's not always a big radical change, but there is a change. Let's take a child. A child who grows up in church. They haven't had enough time to live horrible lives, right? They're sweet and innocent kids. However, when a child gets saved and they truly repent, and by the way, children can get saved at a young age, there should be an evidence that there's something different. They're more sensitive to the Lord. They now have a desire to be at church. They now have a desire to read their Bible. There's something that's changed inside because God's living inside of them. And that change will be able to be seen by spiritually discerning people. Now, praise the Lord for everyone who gets saved and has a dramatically immediate change. Praise the Lord for that. We've heard stories of people who were drunkards who get saved and now they no longer desire any alcohol anymore. Praise the Lord for that. That's a change. But not everyone will have that same change, but everyone will have a change. And so as he's coming up, he says, I want fruits worthy of repentance. There needs to be some sort of change to prove that there's something spiritual that's happened in your life. This isn't talking about that I turned over a new leaf. Well preacher I came up I must have accepted Christ because you know I don't hit my wife no more. Well I praise the Lord that you don't hit your wife no more but there's something more than this. It's not turning over a new leaf. Well ever since I started coming to church I just don't leave my dirty socks hanging around the house no more. Well Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful that you're cleaning up your act. But it's not the idea that you turned over a new leaf. There should be some spiritual change. If somebody comes up and says, Well, preacher, I went ahead and I accepted Jesus as my Savior. But let me tell you, I don't want to read my Bible ever. Well, something did not happen the way that you thought that happened. Because if you love Christ, if you've accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit lives with inside of you, desires the thing that pleases the Lord. 
there should be some sort of change and evidence. Now, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Because what has happened with modern day Christianity is that people just add Christ to their life. They just add him to part of their everyday life. And he's just something I add to it. And I, you know, show up to church every once in a while and it's all good. But when you accept Christ as your savior, there's going to be a spiritual change. And someone who doesn't have a spiritual change, someone that doesn't have something that's changed in here, let me tell you, you don't have what the Bible says is biblical salvation. Now again, I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. I'm trying to make sure that you have the genuine article. And by the way, I'm not trying to make things hard. Salvation is easy. Christ did all the work. It is nothing that you have done, but it is accepting that free gift. But when you accept that free gift, you also get God. And there are things that accompany salvation. The Bible is very clear on that. And there's going to be evidence that there is something different now. Notice as it goes on in verse 8. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. So he's speaking to a bunch of Jewish people. Now the Jewish people thought they were fine with God, even though they may have been sinners, just for the fact that they were God's people. My father's Abraham, I am good. By the way, some people do this today. Well, my mom's part of church, so I must be a Christian. I do funerals all the time. They said, well, if anybody's in heaven, it's grandma. And because grandma's going to heaven, I'm going to see her there one day. And they're basing their salvation because grandma's in heaven. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter your lineage. You must accept Christ for yourself. You must come to the place where you personally accept Christ as your Savior. When he's speaking to, Abraham, uh, speaking to them, he says, We have Abraham our fathers, for I say unto you, God is able to, of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now, interesting enough, without running too far off the deep end, the stones that he's speaking about, when, when John is speaking, he's speaking inside of the Jordan River. And in the Jordan River, it happens to be right by the city of Jericho. And if you remember in the book of Joshua, when the people went over into Jordan River, the people, uh, representatives of each 12 tribes, was supposed to carry a huge stone. And they were supposed to place the stones on the other side as a memorial for all the people for all time. But Joshua, as the people are crossing the Jordan River, he takes 12 stones and he puts them in the middle of the river under the water. Why? Because here's a memorial that can never be taken away that represents what the Lord has done in bringing his people to the other side of Jordan. And now as John is speaking, he's speaking to a concept that the Jewish people would know. And he's pointing to these stones and he says, you know what? Because of the same promises God made to those people back then, he's able to make of these stones another children of Abraham. More people of promise. God is good enough to save more than just you. So don't just say that just because I'm one of God's people, I must be good. God's able to do things this is not just a basis of salvation. He goes on in verse 9. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewed down and cast in the fire. This is all tying to the same thing, having fruits meet for repentance. Meaning the idea that if you are saved, there's going to be some spiritual fruit. If there is not any spiritual fruit, there is something wrong. Something wrong. And God will do a purging thing. There may be some Christians who do not have any fruit because they refuse to go wrong because of uh, decisions, disobedience, sin, whatnot. God says, I'll take care of that. But every Christian is supposed to be showing spiritual fruit. If they are not, there is something bad wrong. And this is what it's putting emphasis on. Verse 10. And the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? He answereth and saith unto him, he that hath two coats, let him impart one to one that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Let's pause here. Here it's speaking about human nature. Our human nature is to hoard what we have. Here he's saying, if there is something different in you, you'll have a concern for those who don't have it. There's going to be, if you see someone that's hungry that you know and know their thing, you want have a desire to help them out. If you see someone that doesn't have clothes and you know that's a thing, well then you have a desire to help them out. If you have the ability to do so. That's something that's not natural human nature. We're selfish by nature. Notice as it goes on, as they come to practical people, then came publicans. These are the tax collectors. They're Jewish people who work for the, for the Roman government. They're tax collectors. They're considered the worst compromisers of all of the Jewish people. Then came the publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than which is appointed to you. Now this is a big deal. Roman tax collectors were allowed to pick their own price. As long as Rome got all the money that was due to them and because of their gouging, they did not provoke a rebellion. So tax collectors could often charge one, two, three, four times more than what is required. That's why they're very hated because most of them took advantage of that. And so let's say that you owed the, owed the Roman government $100. Well, they would give you a bill of $400. And what are you going to do to an official who's telling you, you know, $400? You'd be grumpy with them, but what are you going to do about it? And they would gouge the people. And so John says, listen, don't charge any more than what you're supposed to. And even though for us, we like, duh. But for them, every one of them was doing it. To be the person who wasn't doing it would very much make you stick out. That was a big deal. That was something that's different. What's different with that guy? He charges a lot less than everyone else. Well, he got saved. Well, that makes everyone else look bad. We hate him now. Don't you think that tax collector is going to be hated by his peers? Absolutely. But he was supposed to do it anyways because that was what was right. Notice as it goes on, here's the soldiers. Now these soldiers are Roman soldiers, not Jewish people. Aren't you glad that Gentiles came to John the Baptist as well. Here are the soldiers likewise demanded of him saying, what shall we do? And he said unto them, do violence to no man. Neither accuse any falsely 
and be content with your wages. Here's three things. Here's these soldiers. Now he's speaking to them as groups of individuals. By the way, we all have different things that we should be able to see. Children are going to have different fruit than adults. Make sense? Because we're different people. There's different evidences that we, ha that we have. Um, but he says, what shall we do? Do no violence to no man. The Roman army was known for fighting. That's what they did. And so that was to go against their character, their training. Do no violence to no man. Oh, I mean, they had a Roman law that they could forcibly have someone carry their goods for one mile. You've heard the rule of the extra mile. Well, Jesus said for those people who are forced to it, they would take it another extra mile just to show that there was something different. But to the Roman soldiers, they were saying, listen, don't be mean to people. Don't put violence. Don't use your uh, position against them. No, goes on. Neither accuse any falsely. That was very commonplace. Now, I know it's hard to imagine, but could you imagine a society where people will lie against someone else to get their own agenda done? Can you imagine a society such as that? Well, that's what he's telling them. If there's evidence, if you're truly saved, if there's something different in your life, don't do that. Again, common people were like, duh, but for people, that's their life. That's what they're used to doing. Notice as it goes on, it talks about these soldiers and be content with your wages. Wow. That could almost hit everybody, right? If you're saved and you know it and you want to show that there's something different about your life, be content with your wages. Um, do you think people are having a hard time being content with what they're offered now? Yeah. There's all kinds of things. My daughter was telling me about a classmate. She's not even out of high school yet and she's already had seven jobs within the last year. Well, this is better. This is better. No, this is better. This is better. Well, that's not going to leave a good resume, is it? Be content. But I don't get as much as them. Yeah, can you trust God? There's an idea. Can, I be, can God be trusted with what I make? Now again, it's talking about a difference in life. Something that has changed in their life because of what God has done. Now, there's a third statement. As it's talking about the ministry of John the Baptist, it goes on and starts off speaking about that he is to make the way straight before the Lord. It speaks about that, he's supposed, that he was there to help um, um, bring fruits worthy of repentance. The third statement speaking about the ministry of John the Baptist is that there was one mightier than I. There was one mightier than I. Verse 15. And the people were in expectation. What are they expecting? They're expecting the Messiah to come. And here is this man who has come from the wilderness, who is preaching about repentance, preaching about trusting in God, preaching about turning from your wicked ways. And all of these people are coming from everywhere. By the way, it was 30 miles from Jerusalem to the Jordan River. And they did not have cars, airplanes. They walked. And people would walk 30 miles to show up to a church service. Imagine that. People having a hard time to get to church now. 
But they were willing to go. And people are like, this is amazing. People are coming from everywhere. They're walking and traveling just to hear this guy. This must be the Messiah. And John the Baptist was very quick to get rid of that rumor. Notice, they came with expectation. And all people mused in their hearts of John, whether he were Christ or not. John answered saying to them all, not in private, to them all. Listen, I indeed baptize you with water, but one cometh mightier than I cometh. The latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He says, when Jesus Christ comes, all I could do is baptize you with water. You're just going to get wet. But the one that's coming, the Holy Spirit, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and you are going to be radically changed because the Holy Spirit will live. He's mightier than I. I'm just a sounding boy. I am just a voice. He's the one that you need to trust. He's the one you need to depend upon. Verse 17. Whose fan in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather the wheat into his gardener. But the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. This is now going back to his original message. Having fruits worthy of repentance. He says this one's going to come and he's going to separate the chaff from the wheat. Now this is an old farming term that if you had wheat you would actually have the outside husk area of the chaff. And that would be worthless. You would go ahead and separate the chaff and the, or the wheat and the chaff the rest of the stuff would just blow away. And you would keep the wheat that remains. And so John is saying when he comes, he's going to be able to separate those who are really saved, those who have really trusted Christ, those who have turned from their sins, from those who are just saying words. And they're going to be empty, light, and come away. Again, he's looking this message. Make sure that you know, that you know, that you know you're getting, that you're saved, that you're forgiven of your sins, that you've accepted this promise that God has made. Again, we're not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. We're trying to make sure that you know that you have the genuine article. That's what John's message is. Verse 17, whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his gardener, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached he to the people. Now, John, as popular as he was, he wasn't popular with everyone. Notice what happens to John in the midst of this. But Herod the Tetrarch, being removed by him for Herodotus, his brother Philip's wife, and for the evils which Herod had done, added yet above this all that he shut up John in prison. What happened? Well, Philip had a wife named Herodotus. Now, she was not a good lady in the first place. And she was a sister, but that was regardless. And she got tired of being married to Philip and went to the other brother. And John went in that king, the king's face, put his finger. It is not right for you to have your brother's wife. And Herod said, oh yeah? Well, I'm going to put you in jail. And by the way, John never left jail. He was beheaded in here. Why? His preaching. Here is someone who was bold to preach the same consistent message no matter what his audience was. It didn't matter if it was peasant Jewish people. It didn't matter if it was Pharisees. It didn't matter if it was tax collector publicans. It didn't matter if it was Roman soldiers. It didn't matter if it was the king himself. His message remained the same. Repent. Repent. Repent from your evil doings. And turn to God. 
He was there to make the way straight and appoint people to Christ. Now with that being said, as we've said over and over, may I just ask you the question, do you know for a fact, are you sure from the Bible, not because you said a prayer, not because you went to church, not because grandma's a Christian, not because you own a Bible, not because you, you are born in America, are you sure from the Bible that if something was to happen to you, are you sure you're forgiven of your sins? Without a doubt, do you know from the Bible that you are going to heaven? That you are accepted of God? If not, dear friend, don't play around. You say, how do I know? Well, first of all, have you done what the Bible said? Second of all, is there evidence that since you've accepted Christ, is there a change in your life? Is there something different in your life? If you don't have a difference, I'm going to boldly tell you, you are not saved. But the good news is, is that you can get that fixed. Don't mess around. Don't take it for granted. You need to know that you 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 have eternal life. And God wants you to know. And again, we're not making it complicated. We're making it easy. It's recognizing that you are a sinner. And because of your sin, you've offended a holy, righteous God. And you deserve hell. But Jesus paid the price for you. And you came to the place personally where you accepted him as Savior. Do you have a time, a place, an event where you personally asked Christ to be your Savior? Could you tell me about what happened? That someone opened a Bible. Someone told you from a Bible. Maybe you heard from the Bible. You read a tract. Something from the Bible told you this information. And you on purpose Accept it, Christ. You don't get saved by accident. You don't get saved by osmosis. And you don't get saved gradually. It is a point event in your life. You may not be able to recall the date and time. But you should remember the event. You should remember something about it. If you do not, let me tell you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to say get it settled tonight. If there's any doubts, get it settled tonight. We have enough people who would be glad to take a Bible and to show you from a Bible how you can know without a doubt that your sins are forgiven. That you can know without a doubt that you can go to heaven and that you can have this eternal life that God promised you. We want you to know we are not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. We're trying to shake you loose that you can know without a doubt that you have this. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 
920-530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.